This is Digging for Truth, presented by the Associates for Biblical Research, demonstrating the historical reliability of the Bible through archaeological and biblical research. According to the book of Genesis, the history of the world from the time of creation takes place over the course of thousands of years. And during that time, there was a major apocalyptic world-changing event where all life was destroyed, except for life that was saved on the ark built by Noah. Now that's all in stark contrast to what the mainstream worldview paradigm will tell you that says the history of the planet occurs over the course of billions of years. So thousands of years or billions of years. Well, Henry Smith had a chance to talk with Dr. Brian Thomas and ask him a bunch of questions about how these dates are scientifically arrived at through geology by using tools like carbon-14 or radiocarbon dating and using that on rocks like coal or diamonds. Dr. Thomas is a paleobiochemist and a researcher with the Institute for Creation Research. Here's Henry. Brian, welcome to Digging for Truth, my friend. Good to have you back on the show. Hello, Henry. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. All right, my friend. Well, it's good to see you. You've been on the show before. Uh, we encourage folks to go through our YouTube channel and look for episodes with you. We talked about dinosaurs in the past. We're going to touch on a little bit today. But our subject today, Dr. Thomas, is something that's very important. Uh, probably something people have, some people have heard of what we call carbon-14 or radiocarbon dating. Uh, now, most people don't know how that works but you're an expert on the subject. And so I would uh, love to start the show by you explaining uh, what it is and the basic principles of how it works. And then we're gonna show how it actually is our friend for those of us who hold the view of the Bible that we agree to. Right, so uh, radiocarbon dating uh, starts with, uh, the, yeah, well, we first have to understand just a little bit of science and then and then we'll move from there. Um, I'll try to keep it uh, uh, pretty basic, but, um, in general, we have a, um, a carbon-14, which is a version of carbon of a carbon atom, and it's a particular version that uh, is radioactive, and it's it's got a uh, the nucleus uh, the, the the atom has a mass of 14, which is um, uh, which is too heavy, and so it's unstable. The vast majority of carbon atoms are stable, mass of 12. And uh, so what this unstable carbon-14 atom does is it emits uh, radiation, uh, electrons mostly, and as it emits, uh, as it emits this radiation, it, um, it restabilizes. And, and in fact, it, 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 turns, it turns into nitrogen. So, <clears throat> so we have carbon-14 atoms that, are, that, are, that decay into nitrogen at a stable, measurable pace. Now, this is um, this is intriguing for those who wish to um, use it as a as a clock, uh, because it's a clock-like decay process. Uh, but when we measure radiocarbon, um, we're we're looking at the ratio of carbon fourteen, that's the unstable, to carbon twelve, which is the stable isotope among among other isotopes. So. So we're looking at the the ratio. Now, a ratio is that the same thing as a as a time on a calendar? No, it's not. So you have to convert the ratio into time if you're going to try to use it to date an object, and um, and and that and that um, 
that formula that we use to convert the ratios into a time, a time estimate, uh, that formula includes assumptions. It has variables that we don't know the answer to. So we don't, we don't know the original starting conditions. We don't know how much radiocarbon to, um, to stable carbon. We don't know the ratio of that original, uh, of, the, uh, when the, uh, of that original uh, carbon-based sample. So, um, so that's kind of that's some of the basics. Uh, so, if we assume, if our assumption about the about the starting conditions is correct, um, then you might be getting a carbon age for a sample that is um, really close to the calendar or actual age. But if those starting assumptions start to diverge from um, from reality, then we we're getting carbon years assigned to an artifact um, and those carbon years may diverge considerably from the actual calendar years and it turns out i think that the most recent say within the last two or three thousand years carbon-based um, like trees or or bones or um, not as much bones more like tooth enamel is a, is a more popular um, material to analyze coal you can analyze um, like uh, charcoal remains to look for the radiocarbon ratios. And I think for artifacts within the last two to 3,000 years, it's, it does align pretty well with, um, with uh, other sources of dating, like pottery, as you guys know. Uh, it, so anyway, but once you get into the old, old stuff, um, we have real divergence, I think. Um, so that's sort of the basics. Great. Now, a couple of follow-up things I want to get for someone unfamiliar. We are not talking about the millions or billions of years that different dating methods give. We're not talking about rocks. We are talking about things that were once alive that are now dead, right? So uh, expand on that a little. And also what the outer limits of the, of, the, the, of the possible dates that you can get from this methodology. Right. So the outer limits would be theoretical. And you're right. We don't use radiocarbon uh, as one of the isotope systems for um, direct, quote-unquote, dating of, um, of igneous rocks. So we use right. other isotope systems for that. And the reason is because radiocarbon has a relatively short half-life, which is a, um, a way to, to express its decay rate. Uh, so the half-life of radiocarbon is 5,730 years, which just means that after that amount of time, half of the original radiocarbon that was in the sample when that plant or animal died has on average, has uh, decayed back into nitrogen. And then um, two of those half-lives, two times 5,730 years, um, you'd have um, half again would have decayed away. And so uh, so that's the de that, that describes a decay curve so that after, say, 60 to 100, well, in theory, 100,000 carbon years maximum you'll have you'll have no more detectable radiocarbon left in any sample and that's what made it intriguing to a prior generation of icr scientists who decided well wait a minute our model of the of the flood noah's flood being real as you said in the in the introduction actual factual history i like the way you said that if the flood is actual and factual then that flood would explain all these rock layers, including the organic components, the organic fossils that they that they contain. And so we thought, well, if the max shelf life, if you will, for radiocarbon is 100,000 years in theory, 
And if we find radiocarbon in a sample from a geologic setting, for example, um, which has a secular age assignment well in excess of 100,000 years, they put assignments, you know, um, in, in the order of millions, tens of millions, yes. or hundreds of millions of years to some of these carbon-containing uh, um, earth uh, materials. We'll be back after a short break. We've got more with Dr. Brian Thomas talking about radiocarbon dating in just a bit. Welcome back to Digging for Truth. Let's get back to our geology class and to Henry's discussion with Dr. Brian Thomas about radiocarbon dating. Okay, Brian. So you laid the, the laid out the basic argument is if you have things from the past that the scientists claim are millions or billions of years old, and you find radiocarbon in them scientifically, then that obviously is a contradiction or a conflict in interpreting the evidence. And you guys did a project beginning back in 2007 regarding this very thing. Well, tell us about that. It's really fascinating. Uh, sure. So, well, we did a um, we did a project at the Institute called the RATE Project, R-A-T-E, stands for Radioisotopes and the Age of the Earth. It had many angles and aspects. Um, most of the project was concerned with um, other isotope systems that are used to date igneous rocks. But one of the aspects that we that that we tested had to do with the radiocarbon isotope system. And it it began from the observation of, um, okay, so so there's a machine, a device that we use to, to do radiocarbon dating, um, and it's called an accelerator mass spectrometer. So, and it counts the number of different flavors of atoms, C14, C13, C12. And um, what you have to do to get this thing running is to use an instrument blank. It's like a blank, so you instead of put before you put your sample in, which is the unknown, you're supposed to put a blank in, which has a known quantity of the um, of the element that you're trying to measure. In this case, carbon thirteen, carbon fourteen, and it turns out that every blank they put in, like if they're using um, coal, let's say Pennsylvanian coal, which has an uh, evolutionary age assignment of two hundred plus um, million years. Well, they kept finding more radiocarbon in their in their sample blanks than they expected, and so uh, the instrument should get us down to um, uh, down to um, high resolution, to which which would then, in theory, take you further back in time if your carbon years are we're pretending like those carbon years equal uh, calendar years, making assumptions. Anyway, that was there. That was the gist. Well, the bottom line is we we said we said we said well if you're if you're if you're having a hard time finding instrument blanks in materials that are from that old, then maybe the materials aren't that old. And if the material, if the coal or natural gas or whatever you're using, uh, graphite, marble, I mean they and they they kept scouring earth materials to find something that had no radiocarbon left in it. And after 100,000 years, it should have had no radiocarbon left in it. And so, and so the industry is having a hard time. So we thought, let's use this as a test. We got our own coal samples carefully extracted, and then we sent them to a um, radiocarbon dating facility just to carbon date the coals. 
And of course, we, we returned to all 10 samples had um, a radiocarbon in these coals. Now, the coals are supposed to be millions of years old, but the radiocarbon content in those coals suggested that the coals were thousands, not millions of years old. And that was the first result. And really, it's a, it's a fulfilled prediction of the flood model. The flood says, the, our flood model says the flood of Noah's day deposited all these rock layers, in, including the coal layers that are, in, that are sandwiched between some of these sedimentary rock layers. And so that would have happened, what, 4,400 years ago? Thousands, not millions. And so we'd expect maybe to find some radiocarbon still in those coals. And we found it. And so that was a that was a that was our prediction. We published in I think two thousand three, and then we published the results in two thousand six from that project. That was step one. Very good. Yeah. So so the logic of that, I think you've laid it out very well. Is quite simple. The coal is supposed to be two hundred million years old. At one hundred thousand years, you the date. You can't find any more carbon-14. It's not measurable. It's not, you can't detect it anymore with your, your testing equipment. And yet, and yet, now, would you say that uh, it was a significant amount of carbon-14? I mean, what, I, maybe that's not technical enough of a question, but like, is, is it not just traces, but like a significant amount? Uh, tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, significant versus traces. So it's statistically significant, from the standpoint of certain labs have done the work of measuring how much radiocarbon is bouncing around in the laboratory atmosphere, the, the air in, the, in the, the, the sample chamber, places like that. And so that's, you can estimate, you can measure some of that. And so our coal samples um, had, um, in co consistent with the other, the many other coal samples that secularists had been trying to use as sample blanks, ours also had uh, radiocarbon levels. Um, they're not very high levels, but they had still radiocarbon levels, um, say, an order of magnitude above what we'd expect just from laboratory um, um, uh, background levels. Okay, so the what's in the air, as it were, if you want to say it in layman's terms, is accounted for in the way that this is calculated. So this is very done very precisely. So obviously they're aware of, of that when you send it to the lab. Now these are independent laboratories. These are not creationist laboratories, right? I mean, you're, you're sending this off because, you know, as usual, be accused of biasing the data or that kind of thing. You're sending this off to professional radiocarbon measurement Facilities is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And we um, we we had to use uh, you know a third party to to maintain um, you know anonymity, and uh, so the bias wouldn't um, play as big a role. S so that as far as the lab technicians knew, they were just doing a routine analysis from um, from a secular colleague. Yeah, that's very good. Okay, Brian. You were explaining uh, we have amounts of carbon-14 found in coal. It uh, shouldn't be measurable, but it is, and so it's a contradiction. But then we mentioned diamonds. Uh, diamonds are a girl's best friend, but they're also a creationist friend. So tell us, tell us about why that's the case. Well, I'll tell you, and this is, this is another fantastic result from the rate project that we did. But I, I want to offer a quick clarification. It's not that we're trying to date these 
coals or to assign an, a carbon age. We're not doing radiocarbon dating necessarily in the in the usual way because we don't we don't care. We 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 recognize that you can't get you know an accurate date or age uh, just from carbon uh, fourteen ratios when it comes to artifacts that are this old. We don't know the starting conditions. We therefore we can't. Um, we we would need a time machine to go back to the flood. Good, good. And that's good. Measure the atmospheric levels of radiocarbon. We can't do right, that. And right. so, um, uh, so but what we can do is use radiocarbon as a test between these two extremely different ways of thinking about rock layers. One way is millions of years. The other way is the Bible's thousands of years. And so that's what we did. And so. Um, so the the brilliant rate researchers um, um, who who were with uh, the Institute for Creation Research back when we were in California, now we're in Dallas. They thought, hey, if there's radiocarbon um, in measurable amounts above sample blanks and above instrumentation uh, background levels, then that means it's intrinsic to the coal. So the radiocarbon must be coming from the coal. Um, there's no other reasonable source for that modern-looking, recent-looking, still-throwing-off radiation uh, radiocarbon. And so they thought, what about diamonds? And so they collected um, uh, 10 diamonds, tested those, and lo and behold, um, a little less uh, radiocarbon in those than in the coals, but still measurable levels of radiocarbon in those diamonds. Now, diamonds have an age assignment uh, of 3 billion years, billion with a B like banana. Uh, but, um, but we would say the whole earth was created uh, just thousands of years ago. And that's consistent. It's more consistent for sure with uh, the result that we got from the rate team. So that's even more incongruent than the c- conventional uh, dating of coal. Uh, you shouldn't find any carbon-14 because the date, it should all be gone. Uh, and now in diamonds, we have it uh, 10 times as old as the coal, as it were. And you found you found it in there too. So, okay, so spell this out then for us, Dr. Thomas. Again, like the diamonds, we have a juxtaposition. Tell the audience the conventional view on the age of the dinosaurs versus the fact you found the carbon-14 uh, there. And what is what logical conclusion does that lead to? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so dinosaur samples that we have are generally uh, Cretaceous, uh, Upper Cretaceous, w- w- which we call middle of the flood year, uh, and so the, the secular age assignment is something on the order of seventy million years, um, but we would just call it the middle of the flood year. Um, uh, that one year deposited thousands of feet of geologic strata in our model, uh, which is which is Bible centric, and if that's the case, then then, yeah, the coals were deposited right before the some months before the dinosaurs, uh, you know, in a lot of places. And then a lot of more coals were deposited after the dinosaurs in layers above those. And so we have radiocarbon results from the coals, the fossils, coals above it, and 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 all of these results keep coming in with radiocarbon um, more than way more than expected. And so, so what we're doing, at the, the job of a good scientist in this, to try to answer this question is we're looking for sources of contamination because what we want to do is, is, is try to prove the opposing perspective. And uh, so far, we're, we're coming up with blank uh, stares as far as how, where can we find a source of radiocarbon other than 
the original biomaterial itself, the, the, that's the, the carbon that's in the diamond, the carbon that's in the coal or that's in the bone. And so far, that's the, so far, that's the best, um, most reasonable source of the radiocarbon that we keep uh, finding. Excellent. Which means, as you asked, which means that um, it looks thousands, not millions of years old from the perspective of the amount of radiocarbon that we're finding in these. Yes. And that gives us more confidence that Genesis really got something right. Yep. God is the eyewitness. Well, Dr. Thomas, thank you for all your hard work. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks for all you do. Thank you very much. We've still got more Digging for Truth coming up with the Bible Archaeology Report. Want more Digging for Truth? Then check out the Digging for Truth podcast with longer, more in-depth discussions about archaeology and biblical history. You can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Digging for Truth. And now it's time for the Bible Archaeology Report. And we're going to keep the science class going with this one. The Bible Archaeology Report is presented by Brian Wendell. Find the latest articles on recent archaeological discoveries at BibleArchaeologyReport.com. Okay, so Brian, there was a new study that was done, and honestly, I don't understand it. So I hope that you could explain it a little bit because <laughs> it seems really technical. It is very technical. It was a new study that was uh, published in October 2022 um, using uh, a new method of dating things. So it was a paleomagnetic study that um, the authors suggest helps clarify the date of destructions at various Iron Age sites throughout Israel. And, um, and so it, uh, here's, here's what they did. Paleomagnetic studies, uh, the ferromagnetic particles in objects that have been heated at a high temperature, um, such as pottery in a kiln or a layer destroyed by fire, to determine the signature of the magnetic field at the time of heating. The Earth's magnetics, magnetosphere fluctuates, and so the researchers have spent the past decade reconstructing the Earth's magnetic field by analyzing hundreds of known datable objects. Please don't ask me to repeat all that because <laughs> <laughs> I'm quoting from uh, summarizing the study, and I don't fully understand the technology itself, but it is really cool that we have new technologies in archaeology that are coming forward that are helping us uh, date things. So here's how they did it. They um, used data from 21 destruction layers at 17 sites in Israel to determine when the settlements were destroyed. And they claim in the research that it has helped settle the debate, for example, around whether Beth Sham was destroyed by Pharaoh Shishak in the 10th century BC or by Haziel, the king of Damascus in the 9th century BC. The paleomagnetic data from the burnt bricks in the buildings, uh, the destroyed buildings at Beth Shan, do not align with the time of Haziel, but, but the dating is compatible with the time of Shishak. Another example comes from Beth Shemesh, in which the uh, paleomagnetic data suggest it was destroyed at the beginning of the 8th century BC. Now, this doesn't correspond to any known foreign invasion at that particular time, but it does lend support to the biblical text, which describes a battle between Judah and Israel at this time. In 2 Kings 14, 11, and 12, we read, So Jehoash, the king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. 
And so um, one of the authors believes that paleomagnetic data, which is a very new technology, can be used to complement things like radiocarbon dating and ceramic typology to more accurately date um, artifacts and destruction layers at sites in Israel, particularly during the bronze or during the Iron Age. That's when uh, they were focusing on here. So they're taking all this data from destruction layers from known sites from when they generally know when those happened, and they're comparing it with the Earth's magnetic field? Like, how do they know what the Earth's magnetic field was like 3,000 years ago or whatever? I, I, I don't, maybe you don't fully understand it either, but that's one of the things I find interesting. Like, So here's, here's how I think they did it. They took the magnetic readings, the paleomagnetic readings from um, artifacts, from things that they were they were sure about the the dating of. Okay. So they know at, say, for example, we know when um, the Assyrian invasion came in 701 BC or the uh, Babylonian invasion in 586 or 587, depending on which date you use. And so they're able to track, okay, so the magnetic uh, reading was here at that point. The magnetic uh, field reading was here at this particular point. And so they've, they've tracked this with known sites. Okay. And then what they do is they come along to a destruction site like the one at Beth Shemesh or, or the one at Beth Shan, and they take the paleomagnetic reading there and they go, okay, so where does that fit well, on our baseline? Okay. So that's how they did it. Okay, that, that's a little, maybe I just needed to hear it a second time. I didn't fully absorb it the first time. It's, <laughs> but it, that is interesting if you add that to the toolkit of comparing with other things. So I, I, yeah, I think that's really interesting, Brian. It's very interesting. Cool, thanks. You're welcome. And thanks to you for listening today to Digging for Truth. Special thanks also to Dr. Brian Thomas for being here as well. And hopefully you picked up at least some of the basics of how some of these scientific methods work. Until next time. Digging for Truth is a presentation of the Associates for Biblical Research. To find out more about ABR, just go to BibleArchaeology.org.